from the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University and Human Elements Canada, this is Disrupting Good, a podcast that looks at how technologies and trends are disrupting the way we do good. Now, here's your host, Matt Ewins. Hello, and welcome to episode one of Disrupting Good, a podcast born out of my wanting to know how doing good will change in response to the unprecedented disruptive changes that face humanity today. My name is Matt Ewins, and I work, live, and play in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. By day, I run Human Elements, a consulting firm that aids nonprofits and social enterprises. And by night, by night, I think about big questions. Questions like, how would the world change if through medical science, every single human being on Earth could live to be 120? So with this project, we wanted to know what the human beings behind nonprofits, social enterprises, startups, and education we're thinking and talking about with regards to change and disruption in our society. What do they think of the now? And what do they think will happen in 5, 10, 20 years time? What are their thoughts on the mind-expanding possibilities laid out before us by Ray Kurzweil, noted futurist and inventor? And most importantly, what can we learn from the guests interviewed for this project? So, just exactly who are the guests who contributed to this project? Well, we cast our nets nationwide for 10 individuals that represented different sectors of society, and throughout this series, you'll be hearing from experts with backgrounds in nonprofit, social enterprise, startup, secondary education, post-secondary education, and a for-profit certified B Corporation. Overall, we were thrilled with our conversations, and we're excited to share this six-part project with you, our listeners. Our biggest regret, however, is the fact that we're leaving so much good stuff on the cutting room floor. One final note about this series. While we strived to capture the best possible audio for these interviews, there was once in a while where remote interview and technology got in our way, causing a bit of disruption, if you will. And we wanted to apologize in advance for some sound bites with crackly audio. But enough already. On with episode one. Mary Shelley, the author who in her novel Frankenstein explored the then fascinating world of electricity and galvanism, is quoted as saying, nothing is so painful to the human mind as a great and sudden change. And my question to you, dear listener, is this, how painful do you think rapid advances of exponential technologies, societal changes, and movements will prove to be? Well, first off, let's explore the concept of disruption. I think when I think of disruption, there's always the two connotations. That was Heather McPherson, the executive director of the Alberta Council for Global Cooperation, where she and her Edmonton-based team helped mobilize Albertans to become global citizens engaged in sustainable development. I think when I think of disruption, there's always the two connotations. There is the negative connotation where, you know, disruption stops something that's, that's happening that's good. It, you know, it interrupts something. A disruption is my 11-year-old son in his, his grade five class on occasion. Um, so it's got that negative connotation. But I think what I, as I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about all the good that comes from disruption. And it's the, it's the other sort of side of that where when things aren't going as they should, when our, our systems aren't working to our benefit, when our society is not progressing as we want it to be, a disruption is that place where we get to change direction. It's where we get to move in a different way. We get to, you know, ultimately make a fundamental change, I guess. Let me introduce Lior Rothschild, a person straddling the worlds of for-profit and non-profit, who has a strong view of how good 
will be disrupted in the future. I'm Leo Rothschild, Executive Director with CBSR, or Canadian Business for Social Responsibility. My role is really to champion Canadian businesses as a force for good and raise the ambition level so that Canadian companies are really pursuing not only being the very best in the world, but the best for the world. I think when you look at the history of innovation, you can see how things, and and often we confuse innovation with inventions. So uh, I'm about to do that, but I'll, I'll also talk about why they're different as well. Historically, it, invention has changed our culture. You just look at the advent of television as an example of how it completely changed entertainment, it changed family dynamics, it certainly played a role in, in the movement towards suburbanism even, and, and it changed advertising, it changed communication generally. It had such a profound effect. I think we've got the kind of change that, that we've seen historically happening at a record pace and pretty much every few months at this stage. It used to take years for any kind of innovation to really grasp, uh, take a hold in our society. And now change is happening so fast and on so many different fronts. I think it's partly why we are also at the same time seeing the kind of political disruption where people are trying to introduce a very simple answer to a lot of complexity. And some people gravitate to that, and I can understand why. It's hard to make sense of something that is so in flux. But I see that culturally, we need a lot of new tools to adapt to what's changing socially, environmentally. I think that the jobs that people have relied on in the past, even white-collar jobs, are so fundamentally shifting now that we, we need everything to, to catch up and adapt. Even our education system, I think, is in some ways, I think, equipping us well. I think we've got a, a wonderful education system in Canada. But I, I also hear people saying we need to return to STEM, you know, uh, the, the sciences and mathematics and some of these technical areas. I think the most important thing that people can be learning at this particular moment in history when there's so much disruption is how to adapt how to see opportunity rather than to run away from risk and how to really understand how systems work. Because I think when you can rise above some of the urgent things that, are, that look like they are just chaos and on fire, I think that we can see the, the logical next few steps of how so many different and complex disciplines come together to overcome some of the broad disruptions that we see happening. Moving with an ear towards the private sector, I'd like to introduce you to a digital cartographer, Carl Swanee. Carl and I first met when I approached him about speaking at TEDx Fort McMurray in 2015. Um, my name is Carl Swanee. I am the CEO of Echosec Systems. Carl started out with a geotagging business, Echosec. The platform allows you to draw a geofence around a specific geographic location and view the social media posts coming out of that area. Following the current protests in Hong Kong, or what's happening in North Korea through social media can be an amazing way to experience an event, trend, or place. Carl and his team have now launched a new product, however, called Beacon, that 
Well, I'll let Carl tell you the rest. Yeah, and Beacon's sort of the same idea. I mean, I've always been in love with data and, and just being able to visualize data. And, and one of the things that we were looking at early on was just, you know, what is the dark web and how do you understand the dark web? How big is it? What kind of activities actually go on there? And how do you how do you actually access it on an in an easy way. Um, and to be honest with you, Tor and, and is a very easy network to understand. Um, even getting onto the dark web is fairly easy to understand. It's And it's most of it is not nefarious. Most of it is really just people wanting to be anonymous, wanted to, wanting to communicate anonymously, um, wanting to share information. You know, like if you're living in Again, uh, a place like Syria and you want to communicate with your family in North America, I mean, it's probably one of the safest ways to do it is just through that method. But of course, there are a lot of nefarious things going on in the marketplaces that exist in that space as well. Um, and we just enable police to be able to go in and take a look at what's going on. In fact, we index it a lot like, um, oh God, I, I mean, I hate to use this comparison, but it's sort of like Google for the dark web. And it's very much you can type it in on a standard browser and see what kind of information is is out there. You know, potentially who's selling what where in a very easy to absorb format. So I'm not a fan of disruption for the sake of disruption. Sometimes, you know, in the world of, I don't know, social good, social innovation, increasingly we, we have conversations about, you know, part of our role is actually to conserve, not to disrupt. That's James Stotch, the first guest we interviewed for this podcast and director at the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta. I'm James Stotch. So my role is uh, formally as the director of the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University. So I'm not a fan of disruption for the sake of disruption. Sometimes you know, in the world of, I don't know, social good, social innovation, increasingly we, we have conversations about, you know, part of our role is actually to conserve, not to disrupt. I even test with certain audiences once in a while I, the idea that I, I actually think I might be a conservative at my core. Not a big C conservative, but somebody who wants to maintain a lot of what we have and many people have worked hard to achieve. And so when you see disruption that is undermining common good objectives... Uh, I'll give you an example when we see moves to extend the life of patent protection so that the net result being pharmaceuticals are far more expensive for your average patient. That's, that's, that's actually damaging to the common good. And so, you know, part of our work is to conserve those pieces of the status quo that serve the common good well. As far as disruption, though, there is, there, I probably I'm, I'm in favor of disruption more than I'm not because... There are a lot of things that are ripe for disruption, including the university itself as an institution. So universities have a very long, multi-hundred-year history. A lot of what they do, if you were to kind of be in a blank room and dream up the perfect institution that would preserve, generate, and add to new knowledge, you'd probably come up with something quite similar to what we now have as universities. So they do perform a vital public function in society, and they are bastions of free thinking and free ideas and and free speech. But there are norms that become kind of encrusted over time. So if you look at the tradition of tenure and promotion, for example, which is not universally shared. In Europe, it's not nearly as prevalent or as strong a tradition as it is in North America. 
that has become so sacrosanct that it almost trumps everything else. Um, and it gets in the way of a lot of innovation. And so you see a lot of gamesmanship. You see a lot of publishing for the sake of publishing. Be damned who the audience is or how big the audience is or whether the audience includes policymakers or practitioners. Just get it out there, write as quickly as, as possible. And a lot of the writing, frankly, is garbage. I'm asked to review uh, on occasion um, to be a peer reviewer for, for academic papers. I'd say it's a minority that are actually well-written, decently written, or frankly, even understandable. And so I actually think there's a lot of opportunity for disruption. And you know, again, getting back to the, like that conservative side of me, as a taxpayer, I see some of what's generated in academia as, um, quite frankly, navel-gazing. Um, and, and I think the universities all need to be challenged to be much more uh, relevant to what's going on in the world and in society. And that's not a left thing or a right thing. It's just engage, engage, step into the tennis court of life. But what about disruption that is happening specifically in the traditional nonprofit sector? And nonprofit, by the way, is a term I abhor. That's a legal status, and it doesn't focus on what an organization does. So from now on out, when I talk about organizations that are focused on doing good in the world, whether it's nonprofit, charity, or a for-profit social enterprise, we'll refer to them simply as social profits. So what about disruption happening specifically in the world of social profits? We were lucky enough to talk to individuals who had their own for-profit social enterprises who are disrupting how social profits do good. First up, we have Dr. Alina Turner with HelpSeeker, which was founded to solve an important problem. How come people who are struggling find the right help with a push of a button? Well, I, couple, I have a couple of roles and a couple organizations, so <laughs> I'll start uh, maybe with the more traditional one, which is a research fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. So my role there is to develop and disseminate knowledge relevant to social challenges in contemporary Canadian society with a public policy angle, of course. The other role is a CEO and founder of, with my husband, Travis Turner, of HelpSeeker, and that's a platform that uh, provides people with access to services closest to them to deal with social challenges or health challenges. And then on the back end, it provides analytics to decision makers and service providers on how their services are being accessed and what we're seeing in terms of demand and uh, those kinds of trends using big data. HelpSeeker's experience is a perfect example of, of disruption and um, how many cages we've rattled in the past 18 months is, again, has also contributed to the sleepless nights. Um, but it's, it's also opening our eyes to how this system actually works, how our social safety net is actually held together, and how tough it, it's going to be um, to unravel it to build a really person-centered, strength-based, and holistic approach. Because if, even if something as small as saying, let's map what we have and let's make it accessible, if that has generated so much um, resistance, that's interesting to me, right? If transparency on finances, transparency on eligibility criteria, on uh, client access, if that's a problem for the sector, then we've got really, really big challenges ahead of us. 
In fact, the disruption in the social profit sector has been so uncomfortable at times that those who feel threatened by HelpSeeker have taken active stances in trying to hinder the social profit's mission of making connection to services easier. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, I'm not going to get in too much trouble to say that we've had letters written about us to ministers and to cut funding, which we don't get funding from ministers, so it's irrelevant. But absolutely, there's been campaigns against Help Seeker, for sure. Our next, dare I say it, disruptive guest is Brian DeLottenville, the founder and CEO of Benevity Inc., Benevity is the global leader in corporate social responsibility and employee engagement software, including online giving, matching, volunteering, and community investment. And Benevity is a registered B Corp, which means that they are formally committed to a higher standard of using the power of business to solve social and environmental challenges. For those unfamiliar with Benevity, I usually start talking about this organization alongside Blockbuster and the music industry and how those models changed significantly when Netflix and the iTunes Music Store knocked on and then knocked down the established door. My name is Brian DeLottenville. I'm the CEO of Benevity Inc. And I am uh, sort of the steward of our strategy and operations. In my non-legal career, every company that I have been involved with is what has engendered passion in me is constructive disruption. And, and I think that's what we're about. Not disruption for the disruption's sake, but um, you, you know, challenging the status quo to come up with, uh, first of all, why and, and hopefully a better how uh, as part of that exercise. Well, you know, the people that know me will will not be surprised to hear me say we're not doing nearly as much good as I'd like us to be doing. But uh, the reality is we're we're trying to bring scale and uh, automation and aggregation and efficiency to a landscape that historically hasn't had a ton of that. It it tends to be fragmented and manual and um, status quo oriented in terms of this is the way we've always done it, which isn't always the best way to do it. And and also on the corporate side, uh, we have, I think, changed the narrative um, around some of the types of programs that we enable so that companies are thinking about these things less in a handout-oriented way and more in a this is part of how we do business and engage our employees and, and create hybrid goals of business impact and social impact. And so ultimately, I think we do good by infusing a bit of a cultural change into the world, sort of one company, one employee, one customer, sort of at a time, and, and they aggregate the power of small actions in ways that perhaps hadn't been done before. Well, y- y- you know, the the timing and and you know most companies that that get some measure of success there in hindsight they're always brilliant but often it's it's uh, timing and 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 trends and and some of those sorts of things so these trends have been uh, you know the trend toward uh, companies needing and 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 being expected to do more than just pursue uh, profit has been a trend that's been kind of growing for for many years uh, since the the days of Milton Friedman you know you know and 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 so we haven't always um, had technology or platforms or uh, approaches that 
enabled them to realize um, some of the goals that were being talked about. And while Benevity has certainly changed how corporations and their employees do good, they've also disrupted the fundraising model. And this has sent shockwaves through central fundraising organizations like the United Way. Most employee giving programs historically were uh, administered by a, a, a charitable entity of some kind, the United Way being the, the most um, well-known perhaps, but other charity aggregators in the U.S. do, do the same things. And, and their goal, not surprisingly, was to raise funds because that, that was the mission of those organizations. And so when your goal is to raise funds, you, you do it in a certain way. You pick a number, you rally around the number, you do it once a year, you limit choice, you have peer pressure, management pressure, whatever it takes to hit the number, which is effective at fundraising, but if your goal is to engage society around doing good and you're creating dutiful, obligatory participation, not proactive, passionate participation, then you're not really achieving that goal. And ironically, some of those things are antithetical to that goal. And so having a user-centric, consumer-grade, democratized approach to giving back has, has been somewhat revolutionary in that sense, and that, and that coincidentally, um, the giving back component has grown as the democratization of that has, has grown. So a cause that resonates with me personally is more likely to um, engage me than, you know, having something sort of imposed upon me that I feel duty-bound to participate in, as a small example. Many of the nonprofits uh, who are not necessarily historical recipients of, of um, agencies of the United Way or uh, others, um, the United Way model is very successful for a very long time, but it's, it's, uh, it's rather exclusive uh, compared to what the Internet and, 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 and modern sort of technology platforms enable now. You know, there was a time when people just didn't have enough information, so how would I know who to give to? I'd need a, a centralized sort of um, aggregator or intermediate. And consequently, many organizations were left out of that type of exercise. So now, you know, we have two million organizations in our database, so very, very few are, are, are left out unless they're not in good standing or, or whatever it happens to be. And so there's a, you know, there's a, a, a positive aspect to that from um, many nonprofits. And even, you know, we've had a great deal of success with United Way programs because as you empower choice and get more people participating, you know, we've seen even locally here some of the United Way programs of, of companies that broadened uh, the amount of choice using our software have actually seen increases in the United Way participation as well. And so it just, it just it's different. It's not necessarily worse. Um, but, you know, if you have a cup half full mindset around these things and you really think about how can I use platforms like this to better uh, connect with corporations, which is a key opportunity for, for many not-for-profits. That, that is something that we're doing quite successfully, uh, you, know, you know, not universally and not for every organization, no matter how small. But if you have an opportunity to interact with a modern platform now uh, without having to go through another entity that's controlling where the money goes, when it goes, how much of it goes, uh, you know, that's, 
that's generally been seen as a positive thing, although perhaps not to some players that like the status quo the, 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 way, the way it was. And I would say the principal area of disruption that, that we have tried to focus on is, is you know, use, it's almost a trite word, but democratization of, of what we call goodness. And, and, and we're intentional about not using the word philanthropy because philanthropy is, A, somewhat narrower than what we are trying to, to do, which is not just uh, time and money, uh, but also behavior and action. Uh, as as part of doing good, um, but also philanthropy is something that many people sort of uh, associate with high net worth individuals or corporate top down sort of large initiatives, and and the idea of goodness is that anyone can engage in it, and so we are we have really tried to uh, kind of focus our disruption on ways that would create more horizontal engagement uh, across broad and diverse demographics and also enable micro contributions, whether those are donations of time or money or product or even uh, purpose-driven behavioral change initiatives that are action-based. Looking specifically at how generations are disrupting how we do good, millennials now the largest generation of Canadians at 27% of the total population, have completely different expectations than those who came before them. Once again, here's Brian from Benevity. Well, you know, the starting point is that generation has grown up entirely online, right? Unlike someone of my vintage, um, where, and so there is a difference in how that translates into um, a sense of action and efficacy. So a, a, a baby boomer, uh, and I'm generalizing broadly, but I, I, in this area, I used to be a box ticker. Um, so I want to do some good. I go to a charity event. It's, 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 you know, elite in its organization and we're, you know, writing uh, a check or we're buying a, an auction item or we're, you know, and I'm pretty sure some good is happening, but I'm fairly removed from it. Um, and I'm ticking my personal box. A, a millennial, again, generalizing, but they want, they've grown up in this environment where they could customize their Nikes, they can design a car online, they can, you know, you know, so the idea that they're going to give their money to somebody, and that somebody is going to decide where it goes, and they don't know how much is going, or when it's going, or where it's going, that's completely antithetical to their empowered kind of democratized online experience. So they want uh, immediacy, they want transparency, they want interactivity, they want uh, to see and measure impact. And, and these are things that ultimately are both difficult and important as we seek to move from transactional, passive transactional interactions up sort of the engagement ladder to deeper investments that are co-creational and co-ownership of outcome oriented and when we get there and when the Benevity platform gets there that is where the real transformation occurs Uh, the transactional things we're making them better more efficient more timely more accurate it's great but they're still largely transactional as we help these companies grow their programs and engage more people in a culture 
of, of goodness, then they are starting to be the initiators, initiators of these things. They are creating the events and the opportunities in collaboration with the nonprofits and perhaps other companies, and we have an ecosystem that achieves network effect. That's really the ultimate disruption we're looking to cause. I'd like to take a quick break right now and introduce something we've been calling Cool Mission Will Share, where we introduce to you an organization that one of our guests feels is on the right path and performing excellent work in the area of doing good. As James Stotch, director for the Institute for Community Prosperity, told us, his chosen organization is relentlessly current but rooted in Canadian traditions and one of the most important organizations functioning in Canada right now, helping to future-proof doing good in Canada. The organization we'd like to share with you is SEDNET. That's the Canadian Community Economic Development Network, or CCEDNET. SEDNET is a national association of organizations and people throughout Canada committed to strengthening communities by creating economic opportunities that enhance social and environmental conditions. Their vision is sustainable and inclusive communities directing their own social, economic, and environmental futures, and they achieve this by connecting people and ideas for action to build local economies that strengthen communities and benefit everyone. One of the neat events coming up is EconoUs 2019. In mid-September, over 500 leaders from across Canada's social innovation landscape will gather in London, Ontario, around the concept of communities leading innovation highlighting how the new ideas that will be most transformational will be those that are created by and carried by communities. You can learn more about SEDNET by visiting ccednet-rcdec.ca, or you can just web search SEDNET. And now, back to the show. The social profit sector can be a tough one especially for smaller to medium-sized organizations that are running on a scarcity model, trying to have a greater impact to their clients, while seemingly the funding to operate becomes ever more lean and tougher to access. This scarcity model can lead to short-sighted thinking, where organizations are usually asking, what's happening now? What's happening today? Rather than, what's going to happen tomorrow? Let alone, what's going to happen 10 years from now? We asked our guests how often they think about the future and what the future looks like from their perspective. Here's what some of them said. First up, we return with James from the Institute for Community Prosperity. When you think about like the, the role of civil society and how we address the common good, how we address um, people who are in vulnerable circumstances, it's always somehow tied, at least you know, going back a few hundred years, it's tied to upheavals in technological and, um, and, and industrial kinds of revolutions. So um, we can actually trace with each of the, the sort of three previous industrial revolutions a, a change in the way we configure organizations and programmatic responses to social good. So, you know, the first industrial revolution where we had steam engines and, and coal-fired power and a mass exodus from the country into the cities saw, um, you know, the creation of things like the poor laws and um, uh, the early start of uh, service organizations and clergy-based service NGOs that um, were really there to kind of um, help 
alleviate the worst effects of this industrial upheaval. And then, you know, in the second revolution where you started to have internal combustion um, as, one, as one example of a technological revolution, that also precipitated a more formalized approach to what we now call the nonprofit sector. So you had organizations like Salvation Army and uh, the YMCA and, um, um, you know, the Victorian Order of Nurses and things like that emerging. You also had, at the same time, social reform movements and organized labor. Those are also part of civil society. And so some of this stuff uh, led to the creation of the welfare state uh, into the 20, 20th century. Um, and, and then the modern kind of charitable nonprofit sector, which is now in Canada, we have, depending on who you ask, something on the order of 170,000 nonprofits, something on the order of nearly 90,000 charities. And I think we are just at the cusp or in the early stages of, again, another massive disruption in how we think about social good, who the players are, what pieces of that reside in the so-called public or government sphere, what pieces reside in, in civil society, and what pieces reside in the, in the, uh, in the business or market realm. That is all changing in ways that are, in many ways, difficult pr to predict, but will be profound for sure. Uh, these days, I would say, Im <laughs> I would say often, uh, the future is preoccupying a lot of my time for a couple of reasons. Um, uh, you know, I have a nine-year-old daughter who uh, I'm constantly wondering what kind of world she's um, going to become an adult in. What's that going to look like? But I'm also, I mean, at a more kind of concrete scale, our institute is uh, contracted every year to produce a scan looking into uh, future trends, environmental, social, uh, political, technological. And we're contracted by the local community foundation, the Calgary Foundation, um, but that's made publicly available to a wide audience. So we are engaged every fall in a deep dive of future thinking. But also lately, um, I've just co-authored a, a paper on uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and the future of social good, mm. uh, with a specific kind of Canadian focus or emphasis. Uh, and so that's given me a lot of um, time to think about the future. Well, I think the thing, if you look back, um, even you know, uh, 15, 20, certainly 50 years ago, there's certain things that we look back at and go, I can't believe we actually thought that would work, or I can't believe we actually th had that attitude, right? So there's some really obvious examples of this, like residential schools. Mm. Like nobody created residential schools out of some sense of malice. It was it, literally everyone involved thought they were doing something good or beneficial. And um, we look back in that and recoil appropriately in horror at the stupidity of how we did good or thought about good. Um, there are more benign examples of that, um, things that just kind of fizzled that we thought were fantastic ideas that really have no future. I would put things like a local currency in that basket. You know, seems like a great idea. B Bible Bill Eberhardt tried it. Many others have tried it. It's never gone anywhere. It's never going to go anywhere. Um, let's just leave that as it, as it should be, right? Um, there are things today, like I remember 10 years ago, 15 years ago in Alberta, if you would have said, we want to eliminate homelessness, you would have been 
laughed out of the room or dismissed as a raving socialist. Now you hear companies talk about it, not just activists, not just NGOs, not just government. And so I think in another 15 years, we will look back and again recoil in horror that we let homelessness exist. How many other things will we recoil in horror at? You know, we, 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 we look back and just with utter shame and disbelief at how we approached um, tolerance of people who um, chose to love uh, somebody of, a, of, of the same sex. And, you know, now it's just unthinkable that we would have the kinds of attitudes towards that that they we would have, again, you know, 15 years ago. The good news is time marches on, things change. Um, but it is also pretty difficult to kind of precisely predict what will, what will be the things that are unpalatable or unthinkable in the future. But I imagine things like homelessness will certainly be part of the mix. Remember Carl Swanee, the West Coast CEO who helps to map the world and the dark web? He feels the future has a long way to go, specifically around helping people connect with their past. I, this is just barely stepping on the surface of the information that's available and could be in the hands of everybody and is so valuable and could be so valuable not just for, you know, not just for the purposes that we have our, you know, a lot of our customer base built on, but for educational purposes, for just understanding what's going on in the world. I mean, this is kind of the setting, you know, when they say the Internet's in its infancy stage, they're absolutely correct. I mean, we have talked many times about, you know, making a mobile app so you can actually see where historical artifacts were dug up in British Columbia, for instance, where I'm from, because a lot of that was based on materials that have, were organic and have rotted away or are now sitting in museums someplace. Um, and kids could use things like tablets based on geospatial technology be able to go out in the field and see where that arrowhead was found or see where that building was or see what this place looked like beforehand. But we all have to predicate that on this kind of database being created in the first place and, 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 and actually this kind of technology being developed before we can take that leap. So we talk about the future all the time and what we could do with this, but we're also in that catch 22 is that we have to make a business out of this right now so that we can so that we can have a future, so that we can look forward and say, okay, you know, as a futurist, I see this going on, you know, is is usually five, 10 years down the road. Really, for me, it's always gone back to enabling education for the kids and people of my own area. Again, I tend to think more locally, um, just simply because I think a lot of what we have here, and I would consider our history, isn't well-defined. Um, and is certainly kept in places that isn't accessible right now by a lot of the people who need it to be accessible. Um, there needs to be more of a history of where I, I, for instance, live in an area just close to what's called Portage Park. Um, and it's, uh, it's an area where they used to carry the canoes back and forth between the gorge and the Esquimalt Lagoon. And there was people that lived there. And I don't think that most of the residents in my area are aware that there were people that lived there. And I think there's a huge possibility or a huge, this is one of the things that I look forward to doing in the future. I'd like to introduce an acronym to you, and that's VUCA. That's VUCA, V-U-C-A. And that stands for Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous. So what does the future hold for businesses and how are they going to adapt to survive in a VUCA world? Here's Brian with Benevity. 
Well, I'm constantly talking about the things that we need to improve, which are fairly, you know, micro and, and granular in some respects. But in terms of longer term sort of secular issues, that the trends at the corporate level and the investor level around environmental, social and governance issues are important to pay attention to because they're they're moving from rhetoric into action and they're now part of the due diligence exercise that uh, the Black Rocks and the, 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 you know, the large pension fund and, and, and other investors uh, have a fiduciary obligation now to examine where potential investee companies are on that spectrum. And so helping companies do more of that um, in measurable and reportable ways and not in a lip service lip service sort of license to operate sort of way but in a this is part of creating a an ethical corporate culture this is part of uh, creating corporate culture as an asset this is part of delivering on sustainability and environmental stewardship goals and you know at a grassroots level um, so that it's part of the DNA of a company not something that they just kind of put in a few pages of their their annual report that's a a, a secular trend that I, I, I pay a, a fair bit of attention to um, obviously blockchain some of these sorts of um, bigger opportunities for um, disruption at scale are things to pay an attention to and then in our in our world because of this the scale uh, that we're starting to scratch the surface of, you know, AI and and, and machine learning and and delivering up content and uh, data and and opportunities in ways that sort of reinforce this, uh, reinforce the the virtuous uh, cycle are important. And here's Lior with the Canadian Business for Social Responsibility. So one lesson that we've really come to through CBSR And it's a reflection of the fact that CBSR is a 25-year-old organization. The issues are very different today than they were 25 years ago, of course, but they're also different than they were even three years ago. The space is constantly changing. And I think it's fair to say that because when CBSR started in the mid-90s, it was a it was a space that people gravitated to to understand the emerging issues and develop uh, a practice around how to professionalize some of the responses to these issues. The whole notion of corporate social responsibility was really a business approach. It was an attempt to internalize the, the notion of the triple bottom line. It led to all kinds of disclosure which we see uh, evidenced by the rise of sustainability reporting and all kinds of measurement and data that didn't exist in years prior and and fiduciary responsibilities of companies to disclose that information to shareholders and other stakeholders and an increased understanding of what all that means. But we've also come to a stage when some of these problems are so big and so urgent that in some ways corporate social responsibility it it doesn't go far enough and even the concept that it's based upon the triple bottom line it doesn't go far enough either and maybe never did because it doesn't really address the scope and the scale at which impact needs to happen and so it's great that we now have a lot more disclosure than we ever have before, but we need action. And I think that requires simplicity. So not 
let's not try and make the problem as complex as we can. Let's try and create some simple solutions that people can action. But also, I think that the other realization we've come to, and it's a, a bit of a tough pill for us to swallow, is that it requires some specialization as well. It's no longer about gravitating to the spaces where people can have open and honest conversations, which is what we specialize in doing and will continue to do. But it's also about bringing together people with some deep expertise who are ready to roll up their sleeves and actually do some work. And so there's definitely a number of areas that I see that are emerging that are opportunities for specialization because perhaps there's not enough specialization in those spaces already. I'm happy to go into a bit more detail about it, but but generally to say that the idea of being a one size fits all for everybody, you know, yeah, sure, we'll talk about reporting. Yeah, sure, we'll talk about uh, supply chains. Yeah, sure, we'll talk about community investment. We'll do all of it. I think that it's possible those days are behind us and now we're way past some of the low-hanging fruits and we're we're in a space that uh, that requires a lot more awareness around the the solutions available and then the uh, the changes needed to create incentives to drive competition towards what um, what is the most competitive way to reach those solutions and that's and that's an important part for us because we believe that the that the free market the you know the the business sector can reach these solutions if the right incentives are in place rather than just leaving it for you know some invisible hand that may or may not exist to figure it out constantly all of the time i think my you know 90% of the uh, the, the conversations that I have are something about the future and something about what's gonna, what is life gonna be like in ten years, in twenty years, what's gonna happen within our lifetimes. And that voice belongs to Brianna Brownell, another guest that you'll get to know over the course of Disrupting Good. Brianna is an artificial intelligence expert who recently presented at TEDx Calgary and is a passionate advocate for improving the lives of all through the use of artificial I'm intelligence. I'm Brianna Brownell. I'm the founder of Pure Strategy AI. I'm a data scientist. I work in artificial intelligence. Um, my specialization is in unsupervised learning. And the reason that I love that area of AI is because it allows you to surface emergent patterns from data that you didn't expect or you didn't know that it was there. For me, the sort of remaining 10% has been really looking into history in a serious way. So, you know, looking at some of the same questions that we're asking ourselves now about artificial intelligence, about the future of work. Well, a lot of those things have been talked about in history. And so looking at some of the questions and answers that people have discussed uh, throughout the last few hundred or few thousand years is really informative is really informative to to understand what our future might look like. Welcome listeners to Kurzweil's Corner, a peek into our possible collective futures. Inventor, author, and futurist Ray Kurzweil has a technology prediction success rate of roughly 86% since the 1990s. Kurzweil has received 20 honorary doctorates, has been awarded honors from three US presidents, has authored seven books, is named on at least 145 patents, and currently heads up an AI program at Google. Using the law of accelerating returns, a law that looks at exponential trajectories in technology, 
Kurzweil has successfully predicted the emergence of many technologies, with two of his most famous predictions being that a computer would defeat a world chess champion by 1998, and that people would be able to talk to their computer to give commands by 2009. In this chapter of Kurzweil's Corner, we're sharing reactions from three of our guests to Kurzweil's predictions that in the 2030s, virtual reality will become 100% realistic. You'll hear in order the voices of James Stotch with the Institute for Community Prosperity, AI expert and entrepreneur Brianna Brownell, followed by Lior Rothschild, ED of the CBSR. Well, the first thing is, maybe we already are, right? Like, <laughs> like, if we can't distinguish between reality and not reality, then maybe what we assume to be reality is already not reality, which, which is kind of crazy. But um, it, it, it seems like the things we generally do in a given day are far too banal for to be part of somebody else's game. But maybe our overlords are actually more banal than we might think. Um, but that, yeah, so that's kind of fun to talk about. But mm-hmm. um, I, I actually think from a carbon footprint standpoint, this is all very good. Um, you know, I, on the one hand, I, I think that travel can be mind expanding. It can, um, make you more empathetic and understanding of where people are coming from in other cultures and other countries can make you more worldly, more cosmopolitan, which are all good things, but not necessarily. There are people who are well-traveled who are still, um, exceedingly reactionary and xenophobic. Um, And conversely, there are people who have hardly ever traveled who have enormous hearts and minds. You look at Shakespeare. He didn't travel to these places that he wrote about. And it showed. I mean, they were kind of hyper-fictionalized. And yet the expansiveness of his thinking, the worldliness, despite not traveling, was incredible. Mm-hmm. and unprecedented in many ways. Um, so it seems to me that a, a, a virtual, better than real or as good as real, virtual reality experience, uh, frankly, would be a great way to cut down on carbon foot, put footprints and allow people to have experiences and interactions that are as good, if not better, than going to the place. That might sound heretical, but I actually think it's a good thing virtual reality will become so advanced that and and the the uh the nature of insurance and the trajectory of some of those risk management functions where i'm not even sure that the car park you know the 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 park where you're allowed to just drive around willy-nilly will be too much of a risk you know given that we have these alternatives that you can put a headset or whatever will you know follow the headset um, to to have that virtual experience and then some. I think that it's going to be extremely freeing because there's so many things that, um, you know, within the human experience that uh, would be of benefit for people to, to be able to experience, I think. And, you know, I, I love the idea of, providing a way to, to have, um, you know, to have 
experiences within sort of your own proximity and within sort of your own home. You can imagine that it'll allow people who live very far away to perhaps spend time together. And, you know, and I think that as we're, uh, the technology that we have has, has isolated us a lot. And so I think that there's an opportunity for virtual reality technologies to actually combat some of that isolation that we're starting to feel as a result of technology. So the idea of virtual reality um, getting to a stage where it looks and feels as real as non-virtual reality, I think uh, on one level, of course, how can that not make you think of the matrix, right? You know, the idea that, oh my gosh, are we currently living in a virtual reality world? Um, <laughs> so, you know, wearing my sci-fi hat, of course, my mind goes there and it's just like, what an interesting, interesting set of uh, dilemma for the world. Um, I think that um, it, like everything, can open up all kinds of positive outcomes as well. The idea of stepping into a universe and, and creating something that can then be extrapolated and uh, moved into a real life universe that's uh, been created in sort of a three-dimensional environment um, is really amazing. It can open up like a whole sort of renaissance of creativity and, um, uh, and, and unimaginable opportunities that don't exist to us today. I come back to the, the point I made earlier about who is programming this reality. If, um, if, you know, if it's companies like Facebook who are controlling, you know, 90% or 100% of the virtual reality experiences out there and convincing people of, of something that, um, that is now real, that wasn't real before, um, I, I worry about the, the diversity that we've built into systems like that and that we will build into uh, our future. So that's that's my wish for virtual reality is that it um, it is not mon monopolized by one entity or, or a small group of people who don't represent society. Before we wrap up our first episode, we just wanted to say that if this podcast gets your little gray cells hungry for more about how the social profit sector can get better at doing good, we recommend listening to Pause, a podcast from Alberta Social Innovation Connect. In Pause, partners and collaborators take a moment to sit down together, reflecting on the work they're doing to address the root causes of complex problems in their communities. You'll hear reflective dialogue from people working to shift the status quo to new or different ways of working. For example, through social innovation labs, social enterprise models, and coalitions and networks. You can subscribe to Pause in your local podcast player of choice, or you can find Pause at absiconnect.ca slash podcast. Thank you. And now back to the end of the show. That's it for episode one of Disrupting Good. We hope you enjoyed it. This show was made by... Carl Swanee, Melina Turner, James Stotch, Brianna Brownell, Brian DeLottenville, Heather McPherson, Leo Rothschild, Colson Prophet, Elise Martinowski, and me, Matt Ewens. Special thanks to Colson Proudfoot for his production time and attention. Thanks to Human Elements for hosting this episode at humanelements.ca slash disrupting good. 
and to the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University for their generous support for this project. I'm at Matt Ewins on Twitter. That's at M-A-T-T-Y-O-U-E-N-S. And you'll hear us next time on Disrupting Good when our guests dive into the deep end with episode two.